0: that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hi, it's Ron Coleman, and I am extremely excited to the extent I ever get extremely excited to have Cheryl Atkinson with us today. It's, it's as if she were the perfect guest for this podcast, which, as uh, as we as you know, is focused on truth and disinformation and and all the things that basically she has been focusing on in the last few years, not excluding, and in fact, ideally including her her recently published book from last fall, Slanted, which is entirely about the topic of what the media have taught us about loving censorship and hating journalism. So I had to work very hard. Cheryl, first of all, let me welcome you and thank you for joining us while you're on the road today. Thank you. Now, Cheryl, uh, you and I have been following each other on Twitter for a while and we've had a couple of dms mostly to uh, explain attempts at humor by me not necessarily all that substantive but sometimes stuff that just whizzed right past do you remember when i represented you in that press freedom case uh, about 5 years ago that's how we first uh, encountered each other maybe it was 10 years ago now
1: gosh i do not tell me uh, i had I'm a feeling sorry. that you did like, so, i, I, I <laughs> no. feel awful but so many people have jumped in here and there to do like amazing things to try to help on some some form of another of something that I'm doing.
0: Well, this was actually not uh, me doing anything for anyone. Uh, you and I had never met. Uh, I was approached by a person who I think I probably should not identify. It's not a, an evil person, but I don't think he wants his role in this to be identified. He said uh, he was involved in a case. There was stuff that was being kept under seal. He felt that if there were an application by journalists to unseal the material, that the court there'd it, be a better chance that the stuff would, would, would be made public and a few journalists were rounded up. You were one of them, I was the lawyer. I think we spoke once and this would be the second time you and I've spoken and um, I barely remember it and you don't remember it at all because I don't think, <laughs> we, we didn't win anyway. Uh, I want to jump into the substance of it. Uh, I, I, I did manage to find a couple of, of questions. You know, you're you're so on top of, of the issue. Again, of of what the what has changed in the media landscape. Did you see this coming before you yourself became targeted? As you know, you I don't want to use up our time uh, to talk too much about the you know your story uh, because. That stuff anyone should, everyone should know by now if they're listening to this. But did you see this shift from arguably partisan or biased journalism to a sort of what James O'Keefe has called the, or, or, uh, the Sovietization or the Pravdaization of the major media that we have today while you were still in the belly of the beast?
1: Yes, I mean, I think that I started to see these trends in the early 2000s when I saw the pharmaceutical industry so successfully be able to co op narratives on the news and change the conversation and stop stories and use all kinds of propaganda tools, whether it's nonprofits or crisis management firms or however they want to do it to influence what we do and don't report. But I would never have dreamed in this period of time that press would have been so entirely on board with it, that would have gotten on board or so infiltrated by these interests, as I think has happened, particularly in the past, let's say, 10 years. But um, I I really wouldn't have guessed that we would have thrown out on such a large scale our journalism ethics and practices and transformed into, I think in some cases, little more than tools now that are used by propagandists. That's what the news is, to put out their talking points and their messages, often reported by an uncritical press. And you need to look no further than the numerous false reports by formerly top well-respected news organizations that keep publishing things from anonymous sources or sometimes non-anonymous sources that prove to be completely wrong. And yet the reporters and the outlets, almost as if it didn't happen, just keep doing it over and over and over again.
0: You know, you, you, when I first heard what you just said, I was thinking to myself, well, gosh, so many of the media personalities, and it is about personality these days, which, I, which might be part of the problem, are young, w- much younger than I am. You, of course, are 25 years old, so <laughs> you, know, you don't necessarily appreciate, but they're not people that I grew up listening to. Not that I necessarily love the people I grew up listening to, but they're not Ted Koppel. They're not Sam Donaldson. Um, On the other hand, so so my initial feeling was maybe these people never even got that tradition of journalism. But then as I think about, you have this gigantic skyscraper across the street from the Port Authority in New York called the New York Times. And that is supposed to be the the repository of journalistic quality and rectitude. and, And you have people who are in there, some on the editorial page and some of them maybe more on the, maybe fewer of them appearing and actually doing actual reporting now if there is such a thing. there definitely seem to be people whose names we would have already recognized 20 or 30 years ago, who have, as you say, seem to be very, very willing, unlike say Glenn Greenwald, unlike say Matt Taibbi, who have been willing to be part of this shift.
1: Well, it's a very complicated equation, and you touched on a couple of the issues that I see that I and that I've written about. First of all, think about a young person that only started paying attention to the news in the past five or six years. They don't even know that the news used to be, at least try to be firewalled from opinion and used to try to be accurate and neutral. But journalism students are being taught by professors today in some cases that neutrality and objectivity are overrated and that that's not part of journalism. I mean, this is Orwellian doublespeak trying to transform the news into the very thing that it is not and convincing young journalists to do something or to engage in practices that are the antithesis of good journalism. So combine that with the fact that I think special political and corporate interests have wholly infiltrated many newsrooms, meaning not just figuring out how to get us to report their talking points, but we've hired them into our newsrooms as not just as analysts, but also as editorial people and reporters and writers. So the goal of someone like that is not to accurately reflect facts on the ground and turn up new information. It's to put forth a storyline or a narrative, true or not, to the exclusion of everything else. And their mission is accomplished even if they're putting out false information. And once you look at it that way, it's really the only thing that makes sense when you see how the news is operating today, when you understand the goal isn't to accurately report facts on the ground, it's to try to make people think a certain way or shape the information landscape a certain way.
0: So is this an overhang from Watergate? I mean, Watergate was a long time ago, but that was when investigative reporters both became celebrities and activists. The idea, what you would always hear people going into journalism talk about in the in the '80s, let's say, or maybe even the '70s, was, I want to change the world like Woodward and Bernstein. I want to, you know, by by revealing the the awfulness and terribleness that was Nixon. And let's put an asterisk on that. Let's assume that there wasn't a narrative and an agenda going on there. But let's take it at face value. See what they did for the world. They revealed something that was rotten and terrible. That's where I want to be today. The problem is. That was a very long time ago. That didn't seem to eventually or to really have the effect that quickly or was it gradual and maybe really did begin in the 70s?
1: I think the trends we're talking about today have little to nothing to do with that. I think after Watergate for a period of time, there was that phenomenon you described with other journalists saying, wow, you know, I can do something like that, too. I can be famous. I can dig up something and also some very good well-meaning investigative journalism on top of that but today i think these trends have more to do with political and corporate interests understanding getting peeking their nose under the tent of how news organizations work and figuring out how to work us and largely with the expansion the advent and expansion of the internet it made it possible for propaganda tools to be used on the media even more effectively whereby a small group of people or a minority viewpoint can be presented as if falsely online, as if it's a majority viewpoint or big news, and be made to look like something the news should pick up and report on and make it look like contrary views are controversial when they weren't. You know, they've just been able to manipulate everything about how we get our information. And if there's a a place or a way, that we get information today, these interests have figured out how to use it. There there are very few pure places I can think of. For example, if you think you're getting your fact checks, you know, from Snopes and PolitiFact, those have been, in my view, completely co-opted. I think most people realize that by the special interests, although they may have been well-meaning and at one point. They may have actually been good at what they do, but now these interests have figured out how to co-opt them. When you look at something as simple as the comments, on the federal register before rules are passed where the public's supposed to comment. Those have been co-opted whereby corporate and special interests hire people to pretend they're members of the public and comment on rules to make it look like there's overwhelming sentiment for or against a rule when there's not. I mean anything you can think of, they figured out how
0: to manipulate it. So is if this is the you know you would have thought obviously that the advent of the internet, and it looked as if it would be the case, that the advent of the internet would have been the answer to this problem. And what we saw, of course, was that the, was that the legacy media, backed as you say by this, these corporate interests, the legacy media leveraged the internet, le- leveraged the value of their brands to, to make themselves the, the guardians of what would be considered to be legitimate opinion on the internet. So even though the, most of them are merely hollowed-out entertainment or propaganda brands, as opposed to you know journalism organizations that have the, you know a, a Riyadh desk and a and a you know and a, a London bureau and the, the sort of things we grew up of thinking of journalism as, they still use the the, the equity the trust in that people repose in their brands and being the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Associated Press to do the same gar- to, to, to present that kind of garbage that you're referring to, but in it, with, with the patina of, 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 of authoritativeness.
1: Well, you're talking about the internet and how it's being used to decide which opinions are good and bad. And I think this is one of the most dangerous and to me, unexpected phenomenons that arose around the 2016 time period. And here's how, what I think has happened. I think by 2016, these interests that I've spoken of, corporate and political interests, had largely controlled the discussion on the news successfully. So they had their, their job was fairly accomplished. But then Donald Trump got elected, despite the fact that pretty much all the media was telling the public not to elect him, that he was uniquely dangerous. So these political and corporate interests Realized that people were not listening just to the news, that they were able to get unfettered information online and not wholly influenced by the controlled news. So they set about around the two thousand and sixteen time period and for the past four years to control the internet. because once you can control what's going on there, you in essence, control all information because we're all you know sucked in sucked into getting our information and news from the internet. And that's why we saw this giant clampdown of the fake fact-checking, of the big tech fact-checks that were never conducted prior to 2016. This was a lobbying campaign on the part of the left-wing propaganda group Media Matters, which takes credit for getting Facebook to start their fake fact checks. There's a pharmaceutical industry that drives the fake science checks on Facebook, and I believe Twitter as well, to make sure certain information doesn't come to the public attention. This is all, you know... a It's the opposite of what the promise of the internet was and what it actually delivered for many years. Now it's a way, instead of to get any information, it's a way to control all information that people can get.
0: And what I find fascinating about it is that they're not only doing that to individuals and to people who operate at the level of bloggers or popular accounts, as awful as that is, but they have specifically targeted up and coming competition that is modeled to look like what they do the kind of newsroomy looking the OANs and the um, and the newsmaxes of the world they they find a personality there who tweeted something seven or eight years ago or was seen in you know there's a picture of him with the wrong person in the wrong they try you know they 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 I think the Biden White House just decredentialed First American News hmm. so th- this is an out, this is this is an outright in other words, as, as a lawyer, I see this as actually an, an an antitrust issue as well as a free speech issue, because these, these legacy companies that control these markets oligopolistically are using their power, their power over information to squeeze out new entrants into the market.
1: I mean, I think there's quite a bit of evidence of that. And I don't know the law the way you do, but there's definitely... That's all right. No one argument. Does. <laughs> it's definitely an argument to be made for that, but the problem is the people in charge of enforcing the law or making these determinations are often conflicted themselves. So, are they going to go after the problem if the problem benefits their side? You know,
0: it's part of a cultural shift, and you also have this revolving, and, and to some extent, that is affected as well by the revolving door between the reported and the reporter. So you've got, you know, what's George Stephanopoulos was was a remarkable case when he went from being in the Clinton White House to being an on-air personality. And it was assumed that he would be allowed, and he was allowed, to not disclose his obvious past affiliation or or sort of accuse himself from from appearing or opining or being involved in what we'll call news reporting, um, involving his former employers or people that he had political relationships with, now we basically see that everyone who was busy attacking Trump or who worked for the for the FBI attacking Trump is now an employee of CNN. It's it's unbelievable.
1: It is. It's just again the media has allowed itself to be transformed into little more than a tool. I mean. CNN and a few other media outlets almost single-handedly are responsible for the false Russian narrative. If they had simply followed normal journalistic ethics and standards and reported countervailing views and information, they wouldn't have been so stuck going down the wrong road. But as you say, they hired the partisan, actually some of the people accused of crimes and all of this, to day after day, day in and day out, put propaganda on their airwaves without again, a countervailing viewpoint. And that made it possible for all of this dis- disinformation that gripped the country for the better part of the Trump presidency to take
0: hold. So you got your book published in, in what October, November by HarperCollins, and it's entirely about this topic. Now, I imagine this was part of a book contract that was negotiated a couple of years ago, right?
1: no that was um that was that was negotiated you know not not terribly long before the book was written
0: so do you think even do, do you believe that in in april of 2021 you would get that, that harper collins would have would have uh would would have uh, published this book
1: i i think so if i had to guess but i take your point i know there's now a great deal of effort put into controversializing Um, certain people so that information doesn't get published. So would would people go after Harper Collins today in a way that they didn't, you know, a year and a half, two years ago? I I don't know. This is a good question. I'd like to think that they would still, I mean, there's nothing, this isn't the bar, of course, but there's nothing um, that should be untouchable in, in my book. But of course, if powerful interest if I'm exposing and saying things that certain people don't want out there, they move to try to make it controversial or untouchable and um, it's a good question.
0: So I know that you've got a fairly limited amount of time for us this, uh, I'm saying it in the morning, I don't know when people are listening to it, it's about my, my old radio instincts. Um, my question for you to finish off, uh, or my, the last topic that is as a segue for the fact that you did get your book published, you got to published fairly recently and as far as I know it's not getting you're not getting trashed for it. Is there hope? Are there are is there enough little rays of sunlight or air air holes that we can by just by doing what we're doing right now having this conversation and being able to you know, have a handful of contrary and opinions out there on social media and otherwise, do you think we can get past this? And, and what's gonna, what do you think the mechanism would, in other words, what will, what will have to happen in terms of the, what's going on with the corporate, the connection between these corporations and the media narrative to get us back to some, what you, know, what you and I would recognize as normalcy
1: Well, I don't think we ever go back to what we had exactly, because we would have had to turn away these interests and these trends, you know, 10 years ago. And I was trying to draw attention to some of that, for example, at CBS, but there was just very little interest in worrying about it at the time. Um, My book, by the way, if people wonder the name, is Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. And um, I, I do have some reason for hope. And That lies in the fact that however you feel about Donald Trump, the fact that he got elected in 2016, despite the fact that the media was universally telling people not to vote for him, shows that there are independent thinkers out there not completely influenced by the managed information landscape. And then even the fact that he got many millions more votes in 2020 than he had in 2016, I think that scares the propagandists to death because they're saying to themselves, boy, after four years and two impeachments and him getting hammered every day in the media, more people voted for Donald Trump. That's where I find hope that, again, however you feel about Trump, the fact that there are independent thinkers out there that are not just listening or subjected to the whims of this information, the managed information landscape. I also know that there are, Ron, a lot of people working on a new paradigm or a way to sort of troubleshoot what you're talking about and find something different. There are investors who want to invest good journal, in good journalism. There are technical people working on platforms where good journalism will not be be platformed by these companies controlling everything, and there are journalists who want to write those sorts of things. So there's investors, there's technical people, and there's journalists, and I do think there will be something that arises in the next couple of years you know, that, that helps. I also think, in a way, the egregious behavior by these propagandists to limit opinions and news and information and studies online is so obvious and egregious. It almost exposes them in a way that they wouldn't have been exposed if they had acted, you know, if they had done this a little more slowly, but they really jumped into it out of fear for Trump getting elected, reelected. They started with the censorship and the banning to such a degree that even people that maybe don't care much about Trump, Care about the free flow of information. They're interested in this, and I, I think that may eventually work to the disadvantage of the propagandists.
0: I think you're right. I think you, you know your point about how many votes Trump actually did get um, is is a very pro- profound one, uh, and, and in a way, it's more profound than the 2016 one where he won because in 2016 they weren't quite ready as they were in 2020 for for a real clampdown, and a lot of people got the message that they weren't supposed to get and yet in order to get to that message your point just now they had to they had to emerge from to a much greater extent in a much more heavy-handed way than they had done in 2016 because they were that desperate and i think that another example of what you just described is the freak out over substack yeah agreed it is so, you couldn't write like a, you know, a better example of, you know, is it possible we're maybe the baddies here, you know? Right. You know, it's, it's just so over the top obvious.
1: Well, and I use my my best advice to leave people with, if they want advice on all of this is, in this environment, (laughs) in this environment, when there are News narratives, powerful interests, social media narratives that fit I say fake fact check something, discredit something or a person or a study and say it's not true and that you shouldn't hear it, you shouldn't learn about it, that's your cue. That's your cue that it might well be true and that it's definitely something that you should look into independently because it means some powerful influential interest is trying to keep you from getting the information and you should ask yourself, why is that? Who would that be? and use that as a cue to go investigate that on your own. And that way we defeat the propagandists when we use their actions to actually cue us to material we should seek out rather than keep us away from it.
0: Perfect, they should do that. We should do that. We should all get a copy of Slanted, how the news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism from Harper Collins. Cheryl, it has been a pleasure talking to you after all these years of, of social media knowing each other. And I hope we have the chance to talk again soon. And I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Take care.
0: So long. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.